welcome the Business Game Changers. I have a show that I am replaying that I originally did in late 2017. And people ask me, what are the reasons that you've gotten into, you know, covering human trafficking and some of these difficult subjects? And I always bring up Scott the Survivor and how this interview changed my life. And I wanted to put it back up because it's been pretty much scrubbed off the internet. And this is an interview that should not be scrubbed off the internet. It, it needs to be out there. It's, I want to warn you though, it's a really difficult show to listen to and it, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, but you, you gotta remember that these little babies that go through this human trafficking, they have to experience it. The worst thing we have to do is learn about it. I know it's very traumatizing, but if we can learn about how evil these people are, we'll get a better sense of what we're dealing with and why it's so important that we don't back down and that we take this really seriously and we end these crimes against humanity. And we've got to remember, these are the same people that are implementing COVID. These are the type of people that we're dealing with. They're implementing the Great Reset, they're doing a lot of things against humanity right now. They do put out great PR stories and propaganda, but you got to realize that these are the people that are behind it. That's why this interview is so important to put back out so that you can hear it. So before I get into this, first I want to thank Scott the Survivor for being so courageous. This is the first time he's ever came public with this information, so you'll hear a very heartfelt interview from him. And uh, I don't know how great I did with this. I was struggling to get through this interview. So you maybe can tell at different points, but I did the best I could at the time. And I hope you get as much out of it as I do. But I want to tell you again, before I get to this interview, please go to my website at sarahwestall.com and sign up for my newsletter. And also please support my affiliates. That's how I support my show. And also, if you want to see my extra shows at sarahwestall.tv or Ebonier, please consider signing up for that as well. Okay, so here is my original show from 2017, including my intro, which I think it's important to include that in, and how I felt about this show at the time. I remember um, there were cameras and things set up. And there were naked boys and girls, you know, and uh, we were all roughly, you know, looking back, I'd say anywhere from five years old to seven or eight. Well, they belonged, he, he belonged to a group later, uh, I found, that was called NAMBLA, National Man-Boy Love Association. And I found, found that out from, his, from the records and that we'll get into later um, that I had discovered. And that's where the accounting would come in. You know, I knew he was being paid, you know, every time he swapped with somebody else. And even though it would be reciprocal, but sometimes it wasn't reciprocal. They didn't have a kid, but they wanted a kid. And that's where they really paid through the notes. Um, my father was very big into the political arena. And he knew people in the entertainment industry, whether they were singer, singers or actors and directors, but also in the political arena. He was a Democrat. And he was in the California Democratic Congress. I don't know if that's what they called it at that time, but that's what it would be in today's terms. And during that process, he got to know some very important people, say, let's say. 
Welcome to Business Game Changers, I'm Sarah Westall. I wanna start first by warning you that this interview is very disturbing. It's one of the hardest interviews I've done ever, and it is one of the most important ones that I've done. It's really important that people are educated on what's really going on when it comes to pedophilia and satanic abuse. I have a person coming on, he's not using his real name, so I'm calling him Scott. He's not gonna show his face. He is in his mid-60s and he suffered from a whole childhood of pedophilia abuse and satanic abuse. His father was a dealer in that environment. He was high up in the Democratic Party. And he explains what actually went on. He saw faces. He isn't using names. He'd use a couple of some of the people that are no longer alive. But in general, he feels that his life is still in danger. He shares with us very personal, he's never came out before, this is his first time coming out, his wife and his kids didn't know about this situation. And he explains in a lot of detail of what was going on, and you're gonna learn a lot from this. You, I learned that the WikiLeaks emails about the pool and the four kids for your entertainment with their, name, their ages, that, he makes sense of he explains that and it and explains what they do at these political fundraisers and he also talks about the pedophilia symbols and what he saw growing up and these symbols being used to tell other pedophiles where they can get children and how they exchange them and his dad made a lot of money exchanging kids and procuring kids for uh, not only pedophiles but for pornographic films for magazines and for satanic abuse. And the satanic abuse is different than the pedophilia. There are pedophiles and then there's the satanic abusers. And it's a different group, different agendas. And the ones that are doing the satanic abuse are the more powerful, they're politically connected. And he'll explain that and you'll learn it in detail. I think this is a really important interview and I, I hope it gets out there for others to hear and I, I want to warn you if it's something that really bothers you then just turn it off and and maybe you can come back to it because it's important that people hear this if it's something that you've already heard enough of and you understand then maybe you don't need to hear this again although this is a pretty explosive interview that I haven't has some details that I haven't heard elsewhere so I want to get into that interview no I'm not going to turn on advertising throughout uh, as long as YouTube lets me, I'll have an uh, advertisement right before it starts and right at, as it ends and nowhere else. I don't want this to be uh, interrupted. I just don't feel that it's right. So if you think this material is important, I ask that you support my show at Patreon slash Sarah Westall, and it helps me keep going. I dedicate a lot of time to this, and it, it, it helps me... Um, with you know with the costs and keep my my work going but let's get into that interview now and i'm using the name scott the interview now with scott hello scott thanks for joining the program well hi how are you well i really appreciate you talking to us today because i know it's a hard subject and i i know that you really wanted to get this out for people so thank you so much for joining us welcome well let's get right into it you had a really hard childhood 
Can you give us an overview of what happened to you when you were growing up? Well, first of all, my mother died when I was three. So my father remarried. And I guess it really began when I was around seven. Um, my father used to go to a place that he used to call camp. And for lack of a better explanation, it was a nudist camp. And the first time he ever really did anything with me was when he was tanning me up with oil to keep me from burning. Uh, needless to say, he concentrated on the groin area. And a seven-year-old really doesn't associate, you know, when you're being told to protect you from the sun, that he's doing that. Um, but the first time it really became evident was when he came into my room one night, at same, about the same age, and got on the bed and basically pulled my pajama bottoms down, thinking I was asleep and decided to start molesting me. At that point, he didn't insert other than a finger. Um, but I was kind of traumatized by what had happened, and I didn't want to say that I knew what was going on because I, again, pretended I had been asleep. That wouldn't have been so bad, but um, I had one of my new friends who just moved in down the street about four houses was spending the night uh, one night and uh, just a few weeks later. And when he came in, he didn't come to me. He went to him. And after that day, he couldn't play with me anymore. So apparently he had told his parents, and he didn't tell me what he had said or what had happened, but you know, it was obvious that uh, I, I pretty much knew what happened. Your dad but, molested you know, him? Yes, okay. he did. And I was in, in basically in shock and awe while it was going on. I was you know, horrified. Um one thing about my my father was that he used to get tired or bored very quickly with, with I want to say, a victim now, because I'm an adult now. As a matter of fact, I'm up there in years, and this this these events did not escape my memory. Um, but when he got bored with me, he would actually trade me with other parents, and I don't know where he met these people or how he knew of them, but they would take me to their house or to a place that was unknown to wherever I was. It could be a warehouse. It could have been a, an old garage. It could have been, you know, just anywhere, an old house or an empty house. And he, then he, we would swap, and I would go with that other person, usually a man. And I never went with women. It was always with men. And um, they would have their way with me. And that's, I guess, my father was the first one that that basically raped me and that was about two months before that event happened and he did it several nights in a row actually and I was bleeding pretty profusely and refused to get dressed in gym class um, because there was always blood in my shorts when I went down and it, it just kind of would have embarrassed me and he sent me to the nurse one time uh, to check and I told her no I, I'm just not feeling good so I got out of a, of a physical check um you know, those were really the first experiences that I ever knew of. Um, eventually, there started to be more and more people, uh, you know, a group of people with their kids, uh, usually boys, but sometimes girls. And one place that we went to was in Los Angeles. And I remember the Los Angeles Bridge connecting uh, one of the main roads in L.A. It wasn't on the interstate. And as we went in, it's pretty much in the industrial area. I, I can even remember the uh, the streetlights. 
So hold on a second. Um, the the thing is, is the street lights were such that um, it was just like an omen to me. And last time I went there was maybe 30 years ago, and I, I still had the traumatic effect of the street lights going on the bridge. Um, it, it's it's just kind of hard to recall. And I'm saying hard to recall, not that I don't remember. It's that it's difficult to speak about it. Anyway, when we got into the warehouse, I remember um, there were cameras and things set up, and there were naked boys and girls, you know, and uh, we were all roughly, you know, looking back, I'd say anywhere from five years old to seven or eight. And they would give us a pill and make us take it. And they said, we'll be in for you in a minute. And anytime you can play with your friends, and friends, and they would come out, and eventually they would grab two of us or, or, or three of us, and it was always with an adult and usually a male. So, uh, would they? Then, and it was really a weird feeling. Were they? Were they doing a film, a pornographic film? Not, not at first. Not at first. The the first group were basically swapping kids. And, you know, so it'd be, if, if, say, somebody had a boy and a girl or two boys, um, he would get me for the two boys for a longer period of time than, than my father had with their kids. Oh, so it was uh, sometimes, a, and there was quite yeah. a bit of people that would do this. It was a kind of a known commodity thing that people would swap kids. Well, they belong, he, he belonged to a group later uh, I found it was called NAMBLA, National Man-Boy Love Association. Okay. And I found found that out from his from the records, and that we'll get into later, um, that I had discovered, and that's where the accounting would come in. You know, I knew he was being paid. You know, every time he swapped with somebody else, and even though it would be reciprocal, but sometimes it wasn't reciprocal. They didn't have a kid, but they wanted a kid, and that's where they really paid through the nose. Um. It wasn't until I was about, I'd say, eight, maybe half a year later, a year later, that um, we started the filming. And sometimes it would be, it was always an adult in the filming. So they always filmed with an adult having sex with kids. Um, and often there would be boys, just boys together, two boys, or one boy and one girl with the adult. And sometimes they would force us to have sex with each other. And... Uh, that's really where it all began. And that's where I really got angry and was always in pain and tried to get out of gym class because again, it hurts, you know, at that age when an adult man penetrates. And the little girls were having the same issues, I would imagine. Yeah, they did. Um, I never really knew any of the girls. I really didn't know any of the kids until later. And when I was about, a, I'd say, six months, maybe to a year after that, he would take me out to an area in uh, Ontario, California, by the Ontario Motor Speedway at the time. And there were a lot of uh, businesses on the opposite side of the interstate, on the east east side of the interstate. Um, and that's where he would drop me off with other kids. And this happened frequently. And what he would do was that... Uh, when he dropped me off, I'd get put into a two-ton truck. Only because I know what it is today, but then I didn't know what it was. It was just a big truck. 
and it, it didn't have any writings on it. It was white. And I remember that the floorboards had some holes in it where I could actually kind of see some angles that I would recognize the area. And we would head east on the interstate, but there'd be about eight or nine of us in the truck. And we went out to the, uh, to the desert in, uh, towards, um, what's the name of the place? Palm Springs. And we never made it to Palm Springs because we would turn off and it would go up into the mountains. And that's where, in, when they got into some really weird stuff, you know, because they would all be in black robes and naked underneath. And some faces I recognized, some I didn't. Um, my father was very big into the political arena. And he knew people in the entertainment industry, whether they were singer, singers or actors and directors, but also in the political arena. He was a Democrat, and he was in the California Democratic Congress. I don't know if that's what they called it at that time, but that's what it would be in today's terms. And uh, during that process, he got to know some very important people, say, let's say. And do you remember, and some, that, do you remember some of the people that you saw? I can tell you that one was a governor of the state of Arizona. I can tell you that some were, were associated with the then governor of California, which was Brown, you know, the current governor's father. Um, and I remember, you know, people more into the fundraising part of it, the people that would collect the money. I remember oftentimes when he'd have a fundraiser at the house, he had a big house. And, and, and which is ironic because I know that he was a shoe salesman and he also did some insurance stuff. Um, I, I couldn't, you know, then I didn't really put two and two together, but as an adult, I know that the shoe salesman cannot afford a 3,000 square foot home in a nice swanky area. Exactly. Uh, it, yeah. it just wasn't normal. And so this is why, oh, that explains why he had such a nice house and we had a swimming pool and yada, yada, yada. But he would have fundraisers in this, in this house and sometimes upwards of 200 people would come. They would be in and out all the time. And it wasn't until the tallying up from the bar and the tallying up from the entrance and uh, the pre-sale tickets and stuff that they would do it up that a group of the, the group involved with the collection of the monies would then be entertained by their boys or their daughters. Um, and again, it was a, an area when my stepmother really hated coming at that point. Well, it wasn't died when I was three and he remarried. Was it after the party then? They'd stick around and then be in entertained by the children? Exactly. exactly. It was and after the party and after all the monies were counted. The only people that were there were a handful of maybe five or six people that tallied the, you know, what, what the intake was. And whatever happened with those funds, I have no idea. But um, then we would all entertain the people that were left again. And they would take out their eight millimeter cameras and take shots of us or, or uh, at that time Polaroid cameras and take shots of us. When you saw the WikiLeaks email, I'm not sure if you saw it or not, but the WikiLeaks email about the Democratic National Party, a fundraiser for Clinton, and they were talking about having four children that were going to be in the hot tub to entertain people. Is that what they were talking about? Yeah, that's pretty much what they were talking about. Um, a lot of times I, I would assume that things haven't changed much, that during one of their, their political parties or get-togethers, that they would, that the children would come in after everybody was pretty, you know, let's say the party was until midnight. It would be about 1 o'clock, 
that the, the festivities would start with the children. So that's when things became interesting for them and became terrible for us. We were, we were in terror. Some of the kids were, was their first time. And I was, I guess I kind of took it as a, as a way of soothing the kids, calming them down. How old were you at and the time them, you know, when the, the political stuff started happening? Eight or nine. Okay. And how, how old were the other mm-hmm. children? Um, from about five to maybe ten. So how many, you know, so, was it all adult males? And how many would penetrate a little one at the same time? I mean, would it, they just kind of like a gang rape? Well, they wouldn't penetrate at the same time. It was, it was, well, it was a gang rape. They sometimes put us in a circle and, uh, they would, you know, circle around us. And when they, I guess, climaxed, then they would they'd move to the next one, you know, but it wasn't because men can only climax so much in an hour, I guess, you know, some could do it quite more often. The thing is, is that even though that they were having their fun, it was always in a different way. You know, it could have been through fellatio or something along that line, where they would uh, paint us up, you know, in, in a fun way for them. You know, it certainly wouldn't have been a way I would have painted myself up. Um, but, yeah, these people... You know, even today when I see a, a political gathering, I can't help but wonder what's going on after the, after the party. And when the when it came to lie with the pizza gate, that's when a lot of these memories started to flood back with me. Because I pretty much put it back into my subconscious, but I couldn't get away from it with pizza gate. Because a lot of what people, all would, too what people were saying and what, what you were hearing was exactly what you experienced. Pretty much. Pretty much. And then, you know, when, uh, when I forgot what his name is, one of the actors, Corey Feldman, I think, was coming out and talking about the Hollywood industry. Uh, there were times that I remember, you know, some people from the industry, I could, I don't remember their names, I just knew that they were on television shows, uh, were in there. I do remember, what was his name from Hogan's Heroes, uh, the main lead character. Uh, he was often there. He was an adult um, you know, that was raping the children. He was an adult. Yeah. Um, I forgot his name. He, he he was on Hogan's Heroes. That I remember. And when Hogan's Heroes would come on television and my father wanted to watch it, it's like, I don't want to be here. I'm, I'm ready for bed. You know, so the thing is, is that I don't know what all of these kids went through in the industry, but I knew know, do know that they were part of the parties in some cases. Do you remember being there when and they I were there? I don't know what. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know that one of them from a really popular sci-fi uh, series, and I'm not going to mention names because he's still alive, uh, was there. And he played a child actor in a sci-fi show. And I had first met him at the party, and eventually uh, when we moved into that new house I was telling you about where the parties were at, um, he was in my same school. And so I was, I think, in the sixth grade, maybe fifth grade at the time, learn up to that point. So it went on for quite a while. So now, um, was there a difference between, because you said you experienced pedophilia where people would take advantage of the children and they do it in groups and things. And then there was satanic worship and rituals that you also saw. 
Now, were they the same people or were they different people that would do, you know, the pit of just the raping and the enjoying children versus the satanic ritual abuse? It was usually different people, but I would say very prominent people. I mean, I do remember a, a political face, you know, that, that I, I already said was a state governor of California. And um, I think he's deceased now, which is why I can go in talk about it, but I don't want to mention names. But in the, uh, when, when our truck got up by Palm Springs, I just remember that it was the Palm Springs area because it's often hot at night and the desert was, was pretty scary, you know, unless you were around uh, the adults because there would be creatures and animals and whether it be lizards or snakes and we didn't want to be out of the truck, but it was too hot to stay in the truck. So they would leave the door open for us. And, um, told us to stay where we're at. Sometimes they had a chain, like a chain net that would pull back and forth and lock so that they could lock us in and we still had the air. Um, but what they did, what they had an altar set up and it was just a, a stone table. And on the, at the head, no, at the foot of the altar, and I had to stop and think what direction he usually had us facing. It was kind of an inverted wooden cross, and sometimes they would hang us by tying us on the rope and then tying us by the wrist and tying us at the waist. And that's when they would do their little, I, I don't know what they were speaking. Um, I would say Latin, but I, you know, at that age, I couldn't tell you. I don't remember. I just know that they were speaking a language I didn't understand. At that age, I spoke uh, several languages already because my mother was from so you know, between a housekeeper, my stepfather, or my father, and my uh, uh, nanny, I learned three languages. My grandmother spoke a fourth, and so I learned those those languages as a young boy. Uh, and it wasn't anything I recognized. But they would chant, and they would have these torches burning. But they were naked under their black robes, and their robes kind of the the the, the hood kind of came down around the eyebrow. Um. You, was, you could see that they were wearing very expensive watches or had very expensive rings or jewelry on their hands. Um, so I know that they were not, um, I want to say, the pauper. They were from very wealthy people or families. But that happened on the average. I guess it lasted for about three years before I finally ran away. How but often did it when happen? I was, uh, like once a week? Or... At least once a month. Okay. About once a month. And then how many other children were with you when that would happen? Usually in the vehicle, you know, in the, in the back of the truck, I would say there were usually about five to seven. And, and often when we'd be coming home, there would only be, you know, three or four. So what do you think uh, I don't happened? know what they did with the kids afterwards. Okay. And what were their ages? Well, let's put it this they were young, usually under five or six that they would be gone. Oh, so the real uh, little ones. when they were, you know. The real little ones the little, wouldn't real make little it. The real little ones would. not make it? Didn't come home with us. I don't know whether they made it or not. They were naked. We weren't naked in the back of the van. Okay, we weren't naked in the back of the truck. They, they undressed us after we arrived. That's how I know it was in the desert. And because I've, I've always had a really good sense of direction. And the way the truck was moving, I knew we were headed east. And because of the heat, I knew we were in the desert. And that's and I, 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 
I could see the city lights from where we were at at night. And it was basically where Palm Springs, or yeah, Palm Springs would be. So if a and, child, you know, so even as a young, if a child was like four or five, what was the youngest that you saw? I'd say five. Okay. So those little guys, the, the little ones now they can't, I imagine they can't handle the grown men. And now would they stop if these children were being physically ripped apart or hurt? I could hear the screams of the kids in the truck. They were probably maybe about 100 feet away, and they were behind the rocks. We couldn't see what was going on from the truck area, but we could hear them screaming. And those were the kids And then that some did... of the kids, those were not the... always. Sometimes the kids, okay. you know, even I would scream sometimes because it hurt. Sure. But they were putting into your rectum, you know, not, not only their, their, their sexual organs, but things like dildos and sticks and God knows what else. Oh, God. And it hurt, and I would scream. And the ones that didn't come home, I don't know what happened to them. Did I ever see any bodies? No, but I saw a lot of blood. And, I, and you know, at the age, I couldn't tell you whether the blood was from being desagrenated or sangrenated. Is that the word? Where they would lose blood? From pen the uh, penetration. It was a normal amount. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't tell you because they had... And even then, some of the kids that I saw there, there was usually only up to three or four out at a time. And I don't believe that we were the only truck there or the only people that brought kids because oh, they could geez. have brought kids with them in their, in their limousines or whatever. Now, where are um, they getting these children? Your dad? A lot of them, you know, they pick up runaways. You know, they pick up a lot of runaways. Um, you know, I remember in, uh, my stepfather picking up kids as young as 10 and 12 years old at the train station, or not the train station, the bus station in Los Angeles. And you know, they would look lost and standing on the road not knowing what to do or where to go, and they had their, their roll with them, kind of like a blanket rolled up with a, with a small bag of what was their, I guess, their possessions. I, I never went, you know, I never saw him pick them up, but I saw him cruising, you know, places like the bus station and, uh, and, and even driving around town. You know, because we were only maybe five minutes, ten minutes by car to downtown Los Angeles. We were somewhere on off of Wilshire Boulevard. And I remember we were across the street and down the street about half a mile from where Marilyn Monroe was buried. That I do remember the she was buried there. That was what I was told when we went by it. I don't know. What, I, I never really looked up what cemetery she was in, but it was off Wilshire Boulevard. So when these men were in their robes, did they have masks on or were their faces showing? Some had black and it was black makeup around their eyes, kind of like a painted on mask. Mm. Uh, some didn't. Um, and the ones that didn't were, like I said, I recognized them from another event that may have happened at, at the fundraiser. Um, you know, the one thing that my, my, father never realized is that I had a really good memory. Even as a small boy, I could remember a phone number if it was right to me one time. Um, and I, it, it's a form of consciousness. I want to say an indigo child because, again, I had a high IQ. I remember being tested when I was about 11 in school, and they said that I could probably go into high school if I wanted to. 
but I still lack a lot of credits. You know, so I knew I was an intelligent boy, but again, it was just as terrifying for me as it would have been for anybody. Uh, it's a little easier now to talk about it because I'm over, you know, just over 60. And the thing is, is that it happened a very long time ago, but it's as fresh as it happened yesterday. Well, so it was in the 70s that this occurred? Yeah, no, actually closer to the 60s, okay. early 60s. Okay, and so... I was born in, in early 50s. Okay, and so... So late 50s, early 60s is when it began. And so as far as you know, based on all the stuff that came out with Pizzagate and those emails and what you're hearing, that's what you experience. And so as far as you know, that all this stuff is still going on. Well, most definitely. As a matter of fact, when, when I was young, I would say I was probably about 11 or 12. There was a place in Glendale, California we used to go to. And I met uh, a family by the name of the McMartins. And I knew that they had a school. That's all I knew. And they, they were basically a, a preschool-type place. And they would have filming sessions in this house in Glendale. But ironically, that I remember the houses on both sides of them were vacant and had uh, signs up that they were condemned. But yet their house was not. And we would go into the basement there, and it was padded. I mean, it had, like, extra padding on the walls. Um, I want to remind me, you know, later in years when I saw my first padded cell with these square tiles, I guess, about a foot, you know, foot by foot. On the walls, so I'm sure it muffled everything went out. But they would have filming sessions in there, adults with adult with kids or kids with kids, and usually they would drug us up, and to the point where we were pretty much cooperative with anything we wanted to do, and it dulled the pain until we started to wake up. Um, later in life, when after my father had died, you know, I found uh, my stepmother. I didn't understand, you know, paperwork and stuff. So she asked me to go through my father's office. And in that office, he had these, all of his nice shoes, his patent leather shoes for his tuxes and whatnot on a wall on shelves. On the other side, he had books that were standing on end. And in the middle, he had pictures and, and certificates and whatnot. Um, but when I started to remove all the shoes down, my stepmother told me to put him in the uh, Salvation Army box, so I did. But as I got the shoes off, I guess their way was holding the back panel in place because it started to come forward and push the shelves off the wall. So I put the shelves down and pulled the back panel out. And back there, I found dozens of, of kiddie porn magazines. I found dozens of 8mm reels of film. I found ledgers and diaries that my father used to keep. Um, and yes, it did name names, but he used an abbreviation for each name, and I, I, I usually three initials, and sometimes a number, and how much he collected, and so it was kind of like a ledger of what he would collect, whether it was for movies, or whether it was for one-on-one -on -one contact, that type of thing. So here it was about one o'clock in the morning, my family had already gone to sleep, I was married and had two kids at the time. And my stepmother uh, had taken her night medication, so I knew she was out. I guess it was about midnight, 1 o'clock. I threw two garbage bags, two 50-gallon garbage bags full of stuff because it was deep, you know, and uh, it went into the garage. 
And so I put those in the back of my car and I thought, now what I'm going to do with it. So I ended up driving down highway uh, interstate five and got off on exits all the way to San Diego. And every exit I got up, I would take an eight millimeter roll of film or two and then start taking a pair of scissors to it and cutting up in tiny little bits, which was time consuming. But when you overlap it and overlap it and overlap it and then start cutting, maybe the process go a little faster. The, the, the books, the pornographic images, I actually found myself in about seven of the 30 or 40 that he had. And I remembered the sessions when they were done. And I certainly didn't want my wife to know about this. Um, my stepmother, I really don't believe that she knew what was going on, even though I had my suspicions. I was never sure if she knew. She never let on that she knew what was happening. And so... By the time I got to San Diego, I had most of the bag, the first bag gone, and I did the same thing on the way back to L.A. And I come walking in the house, I guess about six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. But before I came in, I had to have an excuse because I knew my stepmother would be up. So I stopped and got some donuts at Dunkin' Donuts and said, you know, I was up late, so I just went and grabbed some coffee and some donuts. And, of course, she bought it. But I thought at that point that I was safe, that I was okay. Um, that nobody would discover my secret. Now, what's it's, it's kind of weird to, to think about it. It's just like, it makes me cry, I want to cry. Um, but after my father died about, uh, I guess it was about two weeks before I, I went to the house. And the only reason I'd gone down there is because my family was on vacation in Los Angeles and, took the kids to Disneyland for the first time. And I thought it'd be kind of nice to just stop and say, hello, I didn't go. I hadn't been there since my father's funeral. And uh, I came alone for that uh, a few weeks earlier. And I didn't stay with my stepmother. I stayed in a hotel. Uh, I didn't want to be there for more than, than I, I needed to be. So I was only there for two days. But there was a woman that used to be a friend of my father's, and she'd come and get my... Uh, my brother and I, and my brother, by the way, I don't believe he ever molested him because he's my half-brother with the father that I had, or with the, the stepmother I had. And uh, my father was basically this, uh, was the common gene. And, I, you know, I used to threaten him that if he ever totally did anything to the, to the two younger boys, that I would kill him. I would literally kill him. And I meant it. And he knew that I meant it. So um, I don't think he ever bothered them. But um, after the funeral, uh, we went to uh, the cemetery to bury him. And after everybody had left, I made a notation where the cemetery was at. And I, was, I really came back late that night, about 1 o'clock, snuck into the cemetery because you can't be there after dark. And I went all the way back of the cemetery, which had a beautiful view of Los Angeles. I, just, I don't remember the name of it. I don't. I remember basically where it's at, and I do remember the wonderful view of L.A., the skyline. And I basically urinated and defecated on his on his grave. Oh, I deserve like, that. <laughs> this is a, this, well. That's what I felt at the time. And I never really said anything to anybody. You know, my mother knew I was at the at the funeral. And one of the family friends that used to come and collect my brother and I started telling about this. And we really felt thankful that she was going to take care of us while they were in Vegas somewhere. 
you know, because they would go to Vegas frequently. Uh, it's only a four-hour drive from the Los Angeles area. And so she would calm us down. She had an idea that we were abused physically with spankings and stuff when we were seven. She used to beat me with a wire hanger. <laughs> That's my you know, email notification. She used to beat me with a wire hanger. And, um, of course, I never confessed to anything because normally I didn't do what I was being accused of. Usually the little brothers were the ones that were guilty. And she believed them, of course, over me. Um, but I remember my this friend would take care of us, and she she really calmed us down. And we were we were always felt loved by her. Well, during my father's funeral at the mass, I remember she got really rude with me. Somebody had handed me an envelope to give my stepmother. I mean, there was a check for money in it, and I was going to give it to her when I saw her. But this friend that used to take care of us as a kid snatched it out of my hand and said. I will give it to Sally. Mm. And so she she took it. Well, I guess about, I want to say almost 10 years later, her husband had passed away, and my both, both my stepmother and father were long gone. But I was in L.A. for some business, and I uh, went to go see this lady. And uh, it was out in East Los Angeles, I guess about a 30-minute drive from downtown L.A. And... She still lived in the same house, and she started to close the door on me. And I said, you know, let me, let me tell you something. You don't know what happened to me, but you were my lifesaver when you came and got us. And she started to listen to me through the screen door. And after I started to tell her what my father put us through, she began to cry, and I began to cry. She said she never really knew that was going on. And she began to apologize. She says, no, you gave me moments of happiness. I don't need to apologize. And I understand why you felt the way you felt at the, at the funeral. Because I'm sure my father was telling you different things as to why I was gone. I ran away from home when I was in freshman in high school. I couldn't take it anymore. Well, I ran away successfully when I was a freshman in high school. I ran away probably a total of about 12 times from the time I was old enough to know what, that I wanted to go away. I wanted to go to my grandmother in Arizona. And was that your mother's mother? My mother's mother. Okay. And she's the one that taught me Italian because she would talk to me in Italian. And so I was trying to get out there. And every time, Here's a young man on the interstate because the shortest distance from where I was at to where I wanted to go was on the interstate, interstate five, no, interstate uh, 10 towards, towards uh, Florida, but it was in Arizona that I was going to stop. And often I would get picked up by a higher patrolman uh, or an unmarked car that would drag me all the way back home. Um, they would take my report, but I never told the cops what was going on um, because I didn't want to, A, admit that this was happening uh, to a stranger. And secondly, uh, I, I, I didn't want to get in too much trouble with my stepfather because God knows what he would have done. He'd probably killed me. 